As uh, most of you know by now, Dr. Young takes the summer off on Wednesday nights. Uh, for those that don't know, my name is Chris Luke. I am the Minister of Family Life here at Grace, and I will be teaching over the next few weeks on Wednesday night. A study in the book of Ecclesiastes titled, Joy Amidst the Toil, where we're going to be looking at how the things of this world cannot ultimately satisfy our souls, but how when God saves us, He gives us the capacity to truly find joy in the life that He gives, even with all of its trials and difficulties. So we will go three weeks in a row, and then we'll take a week off for VBS. I'll come back and finish up our study the week after VBS. And uh, just to clue you in on the rest of the summer, after my series, we will have a Wednesday night at the fields where there will be nothing inside, no children's classes, no youth ministries. Uh, I don't think there will be youth ministries, but no Bible study in here. Everything will be out at the fields. Uh, that night for a night of fellowship, and that's kind of like halftime of summer, Wednesday, June 30th. Then Kyle Jacobson will teach four Wednesdays in July. Um, on the back end of the summer, he'll be teaching a series called Making Sense of Heaven. We've talked about how uh, our series really go together, as this one is a lot concerned with this life, as it is said in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. And uh, his will be about the next. So again, for my four weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Ecclesiastes is one of the five wisdom books, along with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. The author is debated because he is not named. Uh, I believe the author is Solomon, and we'll assume that Solomon is the author throughout the course of our study. This fits with what we know about Solomon elsewhere in Scripture, like the fact in verse 1 of chapter 1, the author was said to be the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That could describe Solomon. And the fact that this author was a man of great wisdom, as it says in chapter 1, verse 16. And a man of great wealth who also had a lot of women, as it says in chapter 2. These things, too, could describe Solomon. So I will assume the authorship of Solomon as we go, even though if someone cared that much and wanted to disagree, it would not really change the meaning of the substance of the book. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2 tonight. I'm not going to be reading the entirety of those chapters, but I will read a few bits and pieces and chunks, so be ready to jump with me. Follow as I read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, and as we read, remember this is the word of the living God, and He still speaks to us through it. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
As I said in the beginning, I have titled this series, Joy Amidst the Toil. A couple things about that as we get going. Number one, this phrase, under the sun, is often repeated in Ecclesiastes, and this is a good time to mention that there is a good bit of disagreement about what this means. What is Solomon getting at in using this phrase over and over? For example, my seminary professor, Richard Belcher, who taught me the course where we studied this book, he wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes, Uh, he would say that there is no above-the-sun perspective in the book, meaning Solomon did not have a redeemed or saved perspective. Uh, He's rather offering some resigned conclusions on the burdens of life. And yet his colleague, Dr. John Currid, they are both Old Testament scholars and Old Testament professors at Reformed Theological Seminary, John Currid offers a much more positive reading on the book of Ecclesiastes in his commentary. He would say that the book chronicles Solomon's search for ultimate meaning in life and that he finds it when God breaks in and gives him eternal meaning and purpose. So that would be an above-the-sun perspective, uh, unlike what Dr. Belcher would say. The point is that there are good people who are all over the map on the interpretation of Ecclesiastes. And it's not just about what under the sun means, but about a lot of key interpretive issues in the book. In that way, I think the book is kind of like Revelation in the New Testament. There are a lot of good people that say a lot of different things about a lot of different parts of the book of Revelation. But that does not mean we should shy away. It should certainly encourage humility. Uh, You are by no means going to get the last word on this book during these next four weeks. There are still portions in the book that I'm not real clear on. But there are some great things to see that I think will help frame the book for you so that when you go to read it, uh, you have a better idea of what God is saying to us. So I will be arguing for a more positive view like Dr. Currid, not because I like him better, uh, but because I think that is what Solomon is getting at. That this book is about real, genuine joy in the Lord that stays with you in the midst of the difficulties of life because the Lord stays with you in the midst of the difficulties of life. So that's one thing to keep in mind as we get going. The second thing is, though we will be talking a good bit about joy during this series, it is helpful to know on the front end that we are not getting to the joy tonight. (laughs) Uh, And that is because chapter 1 and the majority of chapter 2 paint a backdrop of darkness. Before the light breaks in at the end of chapter 2, we're getting a backdrop of darkness in chapter 1 and the majority of chapter 2 leading up to verse 23. So I'm going to read a few portions of the book. Uh, I read the first three chapters. I'm going to read a few more verses and we'll just jump through, kind of select some sections through the end of chapter 2. Follow as I read. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Look at verse 12. 
I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. Uh, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. Verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Go to verse 14. The wise person in his, has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. He then begins to decry the reality that everyone dies, whether you're wise, whether you're a fool, we're all going to die. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. You know, you have this inheritance, you have this business, and, and you're entrusting it to someone, and you're not sure what they're going to do with it. Maybe they're just going to squander it. Maybe they're just going to run it into the ground. Uh, verse 19, verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity." This is not encouraging. And it is not meant to be. Again, Solomon is painting a backdrop of darkness. He is highlighting his former perspective when he went wayward in his sin. The key to understanding what he is getting at here is a small Hebrew word. Which... In our language, is Hebel. That's a hay and a bait and a lamed. H B L, Hebel. And uh, here again, various interpretations of the word. The E S V, from which I read, translated it as vanity. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Hebel of Hebel. All is Hebel. 
Another translation that you may have heard is in the NIV. Maybe some of you have the NIV, which translated as meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Honestly, I don't think either of these uh, get added. I think the, the ESV is closer. The most basic meaning of the word hebel is wind or vapor or breath. It's the way it's used often in the Old Testament. So vapor would be a decent translation here, but we can say more about that. Listen to Dr. Currid from Reformed Theological Seminary. He says, the word does not carry as its main idea the sense of futility and pessimism. The term hebel bears the primary idea of something that is fleeting and transitory, such as vapor or breath. Curd continues, an example is the name of Adam and Eve's second son, Abel. His name is a derivative of the word hebel. And his name is based on his life that was quickly taken away. It was a fleeting thing. In the Old Testament, hebel is one of the main words for wind and breath. These are things that have little substance and are short-lived. So in summary, Curd says the word hebel means something like fleeting, transitory, weightless, insubstantial. So how does that help us understand what Solomon is getting at? Well, next week we're going to look at uh, Solomon's testimony of when his eyes were opened or maybe reopened uh, to the Lord and how that radically changed his perspective. But remember, in this section of the book, he's recounting his former life in pursuit of satisfaction in the things of this world. He sought wisdom, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. He sought pleasure with extravagant wealth and all kinds of women, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. He sought fulfillment in his work, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Nothing could ultimately satisfy him, so he gave himself up to despair. That's where we left off, 2, 18 to 23. What Solomon is saying is he sought fulfillment and satisfaction in everything under the sun, from wisdom to wealth, from work to women. But everything in this world is fleeting. It is transitory. It is weightless. It is insubstantial. It does not stay with you. It's like vapor when what we long for is cold water. This does not mean that there are not good things in life to be enjoyed. That is one of the big takeaways from the book and something we will look into in the coming weeks. But before he gets there, Solomon wants us to firmly establish that we cannot ask anything to be everything. When we ask any created thing to be everything, it will leave us with nothing. Emptiness, hopelessness, despair. That is the meaning of chapter 1 and chapter 2 up to verse 23. That is the backdrop that Solomon has painted for us in chapters 1 and 2.
Now, I was a child of the 90s. I was born in 85, and just like my nine-year-old son now, when I was his age, I loved sports. I loved to play them. I loved to watch them, especially with my dad like he does now. Uh, My favorite sport was baseball, but I liked them all. And if you were a sports fanatic kid in the 90s, then you wanted to be like Mike. Michael Jordan was it. I still remember the Dream Team when the Frosted Flakes, you could send in and get the Dream Team jacket from the Frosted Flakes box. He even went and played baseball, which made me like him even more. As I got a little older, Penny Hardaway supplanted him as my favorite basketball player, but MJ was the greatest. As I got into high school, the sport that I focused on in terms of what I played was golf, and my favorite player was Tiger Woods. Pretty much everyone my age, I'm sure there's some exceptions, but everyone my age loved Tiger Woods. We all learned to bounce the golf ball on our club like him. You know, you're standing there waiting for the next group to go through, and you're just bouncing the ball, just like he did on the commercials. Many of us had the poster hanging on the walls where he's sitting down reading a putt with those intense championship eyes. And it was really something to watch him dominate the sport like he did. I remember when he won the Masters in 97. I remember his win at the U.S. Open in 2000 by 15. I remember him dropping a putt on 18 in 2008 at the U.S. Open. They got him into an 18-hole playoff the next day, which he won on one leg. Uh, One of my favorite sports memories is just a couple years ago watching with my golf-loving son as Tiger came back to the top when he won the Masters again in 2017. Now, I'm not commending them and their character and all of that. You don't have to be a fan of Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods to appreciate where I'm going with this. You really don't even have to like sports. Uh, But we can all recognize that these two men were arguably the greatest at their trade. I said arguably so that we could argue about it later. Two of the greatest athletes of all time, incredible championship pedigree, incredible wealth because of their championship pedigree and business acumen and marketability. But did you know how unsatisfied they were with it all? I didn't really know uh, to that extent until I read two long-form articles by Wright Thompson of ESPN. Uh, This is not an endorsement of ESPN. I'm just, Wright Thompson, though, if you've never read an article by him, he's an excellent writer, and he writes very long articles for ESPN. He wrote one about Michael Jordan when he was turning 50, I think it was in 2013, and he wrote one about Tiger Woods in 2016. I don't remember what they're called. If you just Google Wright Thompson, Tiger Woods, it'll come up. So by unsatisfied, I don't mean that they were never enjoying themselves. Of course, they were enjoying themselves at at times. Who wouldn't enjoy when the whole crowd's cheering for you and you're doing great things? But the pleasure is fleeting, as Solomon said. It cannot provide the ultimate satisfaction that they long for because they are made in the image of God. Now, Tiger's escapades are more well-known because they were so public. He had lots of affairs with lots of different women in lots of different cities. He was his father's son, and though he had hated his dad for cheating on his mom in a similar fashion, he became just like him. What is less known 
is how after his dad died, he went on a three-year search to find himself in close association with the Navy SEALs outside of San Diego. So his dad was a Green Beret. Maybe this was an effort to try to reconnect with him. Uh, but he would work through tactical training, like in the kill house, when they go in and they sweep the rooms and they try to rescue the hostages, uh, practice cleaning the rooms. But, you know, it's serious. It's high intensity. And this was at the height of his career. He would try to compete, uh, complete all of their physical training, like running four miles for time in combat boots. He would be seen running around the golf course where he lived in combat boots. Incidentally, that's likely how he tore up his knee going into the 2008 U.S. Open. So there's lots of fascinating detail in the Wright-Thompson story, but at the end of the day, the picture that it paints is Tiger was not satisfied. All the winning, all the wealth, all the women, and he was still searching, just like Solomon. The story about Michael Jordan, again, was written when he was turning 50, and it centers on the internal fire that made MJ great. The word that Thompson uses is rage. There was a rage burning inside of him, an unrelenting devotion to be the best. The problem is, even though his body aged, the rage remains and it torments him. You can imagine the kind of turmoil, still believing with the same intensity and the same fire and the same rage that I can go out and beat anybody and yet the body will not permit those things to take place. He's eat up with the passion that drove him to be the best, but he can no longer be the best. Here's a quote from the article from Michael Jordan. Man, I wish I was playing right now. I would give up everything now to go back and play the game of basketball. Now, you could read that as a love for the game, but also as a man that has sought ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world, championships, the global business empire, he has attained so much, and yet he still has not found what he's looking for. It's like Solomon. He was the wisest. He was the wealthiest man alive. People came from all over to see of his wealth, to hear of his wisdom. He had any woman he wanted. And he comes to the end and he says, Hebel. All is Hebel. It's all fleeting it's all weightless. It's all insubstantial. It cannot satisfy the longings we have in our souls. And his pursuit of ultimate fulfillment in the things of this world led him to a dark place. So much so that he gave himself up to despair. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. What has a man... What does he gain from all the toil and striving after which he toils? All his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night he can't rest. This also is Hebel. Solomon was empty. He was hopeless. Now look, someone in here might find themselves in that kind of dark place tonight. And if that is the case... Uh, plug for next week. I want you to come back and so when we look at the breakthrough, but here's a preview. 
Only God can satisfy the longings we have in our souls. Whether those longings are for relationships, for family, for work, for wisdom, for success, you name it. There is a God-sized hunger that resides in all of us. And as Augustine famously said, our souls are restless until they find rest in Him. And when we do find rest in Him, He gives us a real capacity to enjoy the good things in life and even to have sustained joy in the midst of life's difficulties. But that's next week because we need to sit in this message tonight. Nothing in this world can offer you satisfaction that you long for. We long for a cold drink of water when all this world can give us is a mist. It's a world of whispers when what we need is a shout. It seems like it'll fill us. We can certainly spend a lot of time and money seeking it to fill us. But the things in this world are not substantial enough to satisfy our souls. Now, uh, we have about 10 minutes left, and we're going to take a bit of a detour, but it's not really a detour. It's more like a scenic route, and it's going to help fill out our, our message tonight. I want you to see a couple other Old Testament passages and how the word hebel is used there. So turn to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, I'm going to show you something that's going to fill this out for us even more. Deuteronomy 32, 21. God speaking. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Now, what does this have to do with our study tonight? Guess what the Hebrew word is that is translated as idols? Pretty interesting. That's not how it's used in Ecclesiastes, but it's the same word, and it's translated differently here in Deuteronomy. Now, hebel is not the only word that is used for idols in the Old Testament, but it is one of them. So what is an idol? It is any created thing that we try to make an ultimate thing. Any created thing that we try to make an ultimate thing. So the people in the Old Testament were worshiping wooden and gold statues. Uh, we might look at that and think that's pretty stupid. But that was the culture they were immersed in. It was all around them. The unbelieving people in the surrounding culture were worshiping statues. So they joined in, and it provoked the Lord to anger because He alone is worthy of our worship. Now, we may not be bowing down before statues, but what is our culture bowing down to that we might get sucked into? Anything that we are trying to make an ultimate thing is an idol. It is a God replacement. 
Now, my point in reading the passage is not to dwell on the anger of God, though if we are stuck in a cycle of seeking God replacements to fulfill us in a way that only God can, we would do well to dwell on how that provokes the Lord to anger. Our God is a jealous God, and He will not share the glory that He is due with another. But the reason I bring it up is to focus on the satisfaction that idols bring to those who worship them, which is to say, none. It is fleeting satisfaction. Not only is it wicked to worship idols, but they are fleeting and insubstantial. And that reality is packed into the very word that is used for them. They cannot satisfy the longings that we have in our souls. You don't have to turn there, but another passage is Jeremiah 8.19, where Hebel is translated as idols. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? Hebel. So yes, our pursuit of idols angers the Lord, but my point is in line with what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes. The idols we pursue cannot fulfill us. And the thing is, we normally make idols out of good things, out of gifts from the Lord. We can make an idol out of work. Work is a good thing. It's a part of God's very good creation design. It is a gift to be healthy and strong enough and smart enough to work. It's great to have a job in order to go to work. There are numbers of people that would kill for that opportunity after this last year. And yet, we can make an idol out of work. We can elevate it from being a good thing to trying to make it an ultimate thing. We can make an idol out of marriage, whether we're married or single. Marriage is a good thing. It is a part of God's very good creation design. And yet it cannot provide the ultimate satisfaction that we long for, only God can. We can make an idol out of sex. Sex is a good thing. It's a part of God's very good creation design. But when we take that good thing and try to make it an ultimate thing, it will never satisfy. We can make an idol out of family. The biblical family unit is a good thing. It's one of our core values here at Grace of Anne. And with the kinds of insanity that we have in our culture, we need to hunker down on the fact that the biblical family unit is a good thing and a gift from the Lord. Or what about our government? Government is a good thing. Established by God as a minister to this society, it says in Romans 13. What about money? Money's a good thing. Yet if you ask any of these good things to be an ultimate thing, it will leave you empty and lead you to despair. It's what happened to Solomon. He made an idol out of his work. He made an idol out of his wisdom. He made an idol out of women. He made an idol out of his wealth. But it was all fleeting pleasure when what he longed for was lasting and substantial satisfaction and joy that can only be found in the Lord. So here's your homework. What are you idolizing? 
What good thing are you asking to be an ultimate thing? Get alone before the Lord this week. Ask Him to search your heart and expose it as He did in Solomon. Where am I seeking in the creation what can only be found in the Creator? May God expose it in all of us in order that He might lead us into the true satisfaction and joy that will be the subject of our study for the next few weeks. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are God and there is no other. And you are good. And the world that you have made is good. And you have given us so many good gifts. Every good and perfect thing is from you. And yet our hearts are deceitful. And our flesh loves to try to lead us into making these good things into ultimate things. And we confess that is sin, and we ask that you would expose in us where we are doing that. Lord, because it will rob us of joy. It will empty us of the pleasure that we are seeking. It will lead us to hopelessness and despair. And yet, Lord, we know that true satisfaction and lasting joy is found in our relationship with you only because of Christ. I pray that you would fill us, Holy Spirit, and grant us this wisdom and understanding that it might be applied in our lives. And we commit it to your care in Jesus' name. Amen. That is a wrap, and we're going to have dessert, so stick around. And go get your kids.